Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. So today's guest is Will Storr. So he is the author of his new book called Selfie. So I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was really, really interesting. It talks a lot about loads of subjects that I'm really fascinated with, the internet and our identities and um, our environments. So really recommend the book. He unpicks this idea of self-esteem that is, is such a big part of our culture. There's lots of really interesting research about where this idea of being this confident, amazing extrovert self, because it wasn't always that way in our culture. Loads of interesting conversations about this perfect self that the media and Instagram and the world tells us to be. Um, so yeah, it's quite liberating, this read, because it kind of inspires you that actually you don't have to be the person that the media always tells you to be, basically. There was loads of interesting stuff in this episode about the future of work, which I found really fascinating. I really enjoyed having sort of a friendly debate about it and seeing it from someone else's perspective and and challenging myself in my thoughts. We also talk about the fact that we are living in a a weird time where we are so one-sided sometimes in our beliefs and Will actually gives some tips at the end of this episode on how to spot if you are holding an idea too sacred and that actually you should perhaps open it up I think it's also really interesting for me because I am in the middle of writing a book um, which is called The Multi-Hyphen Method. It is a new kind of business book and it is about empowering yourself in this new workplace and it is about taking this idea of what security is and creating our own opportunities for ourselves. So uh, if you want to, you can go and pre-order it on Amazon but you know it doesn't come out till next year. Really, really great chat with Will. I really recommend you checking out Selfie and there's particularly a chapter which I really enjoyed called The digital self that was my favorite chapter so uh thanks so much for supporting this podcast as you always do every week i've actually got a really special one going out next week it's the hundredth episode cannot believe i've done a hundred episodes and so next week's is slightly different just to mark um mark it as a bit of a celebration so thank you again for everything and for all your reviews and ratings and tweets and comments and everything here it is So, hello, Will. Hi, Emma. I'm really sorry about me. I literally ran here and I think I'm sweating. <laughs> so... <laughs> There's no visible sweat, so you're, that's all that matters, really. <laughs> I read your book and I absolutely loved it because I guess a lot of my work and also this podcast, actually, is all about social media, how it's affecting us and our personalities and also our relationships with each other. Um, and your book, I guess, covers a lot of that, like how we act and our identities are we more narcissistic than our ancestors but what sparked this idea when were you like right I need to I need to write a whole book on this <laughs> well it was actually when I was doing it because I'm a, obviously I'm a journalist um, during the day and it was when I was writing a story about this guy Roy Baumeister who's this it was like a profile he's this really amazing famous kind of legendary American psychologist and so he, he was this guy who back in the 80s was absolutely in the midst of this um, notion that high self-esteem was like this magic bullet like everybody needed high self-esteem and I was complete because I was brought up in this era so I'm in my early 40s so I'm like generation x and this was like totally what I was brought up with and so it, I had a bit of a troubled childhood <laughs> and, and the constant refrain from everybody was like oh you've just got low self-esteem that's your problem and it was only when I was d doing this story a few years ago that I realized that it was all nonsense that actually all this self-esteem stuff just wasn't true mm -hmm. so I was doing that story and I'm um, finding out about how he changed his mind and how he kind of changed our understanding of self-esteem and then I found out that actually the reason we all believe that in the first place is 
because of this kind of small group of people that were kind of active in California in the 80s. And then I just thought, that's amazing. It's amazing that this small group of people had such a huge impact mm. on culture. And that's when I thought there could be a book in this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of research in the book, um, but there's also a lot of modern references. How, how was the process of writing it? It was... It was it was kind of chaotic. It was one of those books where as soon as you um, hit upon one new part of the story, for example, how our neoliberal economy is so pow- has such a powerful influence over who we are, then suddenly you've got to work out You've got to start. You've got to understand the economy there. You've got mm. to understand what neoliberalism is, and then suddenly. What, got, for people that don't know, what is neoliberalism? Well, exactly. That was the question I had to deal with when I was the book. So, so uh, I think the best way to explain it is, uh, and actually, is a good way of explaining how it fits into the story of selfie, is that if you think about who we were in 1965 versus who we are, who we were in 1985, it's like a massive transformation in mm. our personality. So in 65 we were these anti-materialistic, anti-corporate, collectively minded hippies who were all kind of dropping out of society. And just 20 years later, which is like no time at all, we're yuppies. We're like greed is good, you know, in the city with our red braces on. It's just extraordinary. And so what happens right in the middle of those dates, 1980, uh, new governments come in um, and they uh, and the, during the 70s our economy has been in absolute chaos and they have to come up with a new idea in order to kind of save save the West really and this new idea it's called neoliberalism but it's essentially we're going to turn all of human life into a really competitive struggle so we're going to strip away all the protections of the state like the welfare state you know all that stuff we're going to um, strip away all the regulations from business that don't have to look after anymore and it's just going to be person against person so that's why um, there were these big wars against the unions in the 80s so here we had the miners strike in America there was a, there was a similar thing with air traffic controllers they went mm. to war with the unions because you know unions were this collective thing so so, so it essentially it kind of gamifies human society it turns everything into this kind of hunger games realm of Everybody's fighting against everybody else. Um, and, and so if there's one idea that kind of underpins the whole of the book, it's that who we are is very much a product of our environment. And, but we, we get into the really hard stuff right from the top here. I, know, yeah, <laughs> I just feel like, oh God, I hope. So that's the main thing to understand is that, is that when we're kind of born, it's like our brain asks a really simple question. It's like, who do I have to be in this environment in order to get along mm. and get ahead and that's why we're different people in different environments yeah exactly so in the 60s it was it was one thing but then in the 80s it became you've got to be a hustler because this is a tough world you've got to survive it there's no unions anymore there's no jobs for life uh, there's, there's, there's a much reduced welfare state you've got to push yourself um, in order to get along and get ahead and we're still living in a neoliberalistic um, economy now you know so, we, so, so it sounds it, very relevant to right now doesn't yeah. it like that sort of hustle hustle got to be seen got to be out there you're getting rewarded for being an individual exactly and for pushing yourself to the front of the thing I mean, and, so that, and that's rewarded in our economy and so you know, obviously millennials are the, are the children of, the, of Generation X who were kind of brought up through this so we're two generations in now so I mean that's the big sort of question you know the title of the subtitle of the book is how we became so self-obsessed and and I think this is the sort of what the big the big answer really is that is that our environment really shapes us and and, and a big part of our environment is our economy I mean, it's it's all like it's so much you know it's our economy it gives us status money you know the economy is this huge underlying thing that that that, that kind of affects kind of who we are so 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 that's that that's sort of a really big part of the story and do you think then 
in that case, when the economy does affect us so much and we are a product of everything that we've ever had growing up, do you think it's unfair then sometimes when other generations judge another generation it's massive, for their choices? It's massively unfair because I think, I think you know, one of the things that Selfie does is it, it really explores the massive extent to which culture becomes us. You know, when we're born, our brains are, you know, have no idea what environment they're going to be born into and they shape themselves to the environment. Physically, they physically shape themselves to the environment. And, and so, uh, you know, culture becomes us. The, the rules and, you know, laws and uh, values of our culture it literally becomes who we are, which is why, you know, you look back 200 years and you, th- and you think of the things that they thought about the world, the racist, homophobic things mm. that they thought about were abhorrent. You think, how could they have thought that? And they, could have th- they thought that because that was their culture. That's just how it works. You know, we're part genes and part environment, and a huge part of that environment is culture. And so, so when my generation say to the millennials, oh, they're just a bunch of self-obsessed idiots. It was like, well, you created them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know it's, it's, they, they appear self-obsessed because self-obsessed is what you have to be these days in order to survive yeah. and get ahead. I always think you're, you do the best of what you've got and the tools that you have at the time. And so it's, you can't even contrast it because so much has changed in the last few decades. Massively, so much. yeah. Even though you can't see it on the surface, it's all of these tools that underpin us. But do you think then, you know when you sort of, um, you're like at a dinner thing and it's like a family occasion and you like your grandma or says something a bit off, do you, do you think that they are to be forgiven in that, I, yeah, in that respect? Yeah, I, I think so. And um, I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that before, but now I really do think that because you know, one of the illusions the kind of the brain spins for us is that we are almost, we're not animals, but like gods, that we have this kind of this this godlike overview of the world, and we can kind of float free of our culture and our genes and and and, and, and sort of mm-hmm. make these judgments. But this is really not true. You know, we are so much of a product of our of our culture, and in the West, that goes back a lot of it goes back two and a half thousand years to ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. So so it's and it's amazing when you see some of the experiments that psychologists do looking at people who have this ancient Greek outlook compared to people from the East Asia who have this Confucian outlook. I mean, they're literally seeing the world in different ways. Their eyes are moving in different mm-hmm. patterns. Um, so people in the, from the East are far more aware of the connections between things than we are. So that's how deep culture... Mm-hmm. It, before I did the book, I thought of culture like everybody else does. Oh, it's the kind of books you read and it's operas or whatever. Yeah. But it's not. It's literally... Your culture literally... Uh, sort of helps define how you experience reality from the ground up. So it's not surprising when Gran says something offensive because that's the world in which she grew up. Those were the yeah. values and the codes. And so, and that's and, and interestingly, all of the the really interesting stuff about the perfect self in the book and and how we are trying to strive to be this thing that doesn't even exist. We can never be this thing that we're chasing. It's interesting that the perfect self would be different for other people then. Yeah, absolutely. And in other generations. Yeah. Other generations will have different different formulations of the perfect self. But I think Gen X and Millennials, it's not that different because we're all really, uh, we've, we've been born out of the same environment, which is this neoliberal environment. And and one of the things that culture does is, is that, you know, it produces heroic characters and uh, in stories and in movies and on in and advertising and and who that hero is is the person sort of best equipped to survive in this in in your particular environment so you know the perfect neoliberal self is this thin healthy um uh, self-motivated uh, globally minded because we're all kind of globalist these days extroverted person you know we all have these different kinds of personalities and and and, and 
extroverts are, are, are kind of privileged in our culture because they're, they're the ones that will get on in a corporate mm. environment they're the ones that are going to get on in, in business better so so you fall into this trap of looking at this kind of perfect person and thinking yes that is objectively a perfect person but it's not it's like propaganda it's that's the person your culture wants you to become because that's the person who's going to survive best in your environment so yeah, yeah. so it's when you understand that you, it's good because it's kind of liberating because you can kind of see actually it's not a law of the universe that the perfect person is extrovert or thin for example mm. it's just that's just the propaganda that our culture kind of bubbles up from our culture. So I found that sort of really liberating because I'm not at all a sociable person. And I always used to spend years sort of beating myself up and thinking, what's wrong with me that I don't really have a wide circle of friends? What's wrong with me that you watch television and you see people having dinner parties mm, and having squad, fun? Squad goals. <laughs> yeah, exactly, squad goals. <laughs> and, you think, and I literally felt there was something wrong with me. You know, I go to therapy and, and I would talk about it with people going, you know, I just don't get it. Like this. And, and, and then when you look at the science you find actually there's nothing wrong with me at all I just have a certain personality type is there something in it to do with masculinity though because I feel like boys are always and men are, are sort of told off for not being a certain type yeah I, I think I, I think what's happened um, uh, with masculinity is, is quite interesting because society has progressed uh, um, it, it puts it puts interesting pressures on the on, on, on the kind of the masculine stereotype and in lots of men in their default, I don't know, for whatever reason, whether it's genetic or whether it's culture, but, you know, generally speaking, lots of men, for example, uh, tend to go to anger mm. in moments of stress, and, and, and you can't do that anymore. And, and I think what's, what's happened, um, you know, since the great feminist revolution is that, is, is that kind of uh, gender expectations have converged. Mm. So um, one of the interesting studies that I, that I talk about at the beginning of the book is when they look at what does it take to be a man in our culture? And actually what it takes is you've got to be the best of men and the best of women. Mm. So you've got to be a nurturer and, and a family person and somebody that never loses their temper. But you've still also got to be a provider and a protector. And, and so, so, so it builds this picture. And this isn't just, this is what men and women both mm. define. Yeah, because you know, then, the, then the women are like, have to do it all as well. Yeah, so it's, yeah. we're both merging the two. Exactly. Yeah. And so, 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 so there's also this pressure now on women to be high achievers and to earn lots of money instead to earn their own status and and that's the thing it's obviously fantastic but it's also a trade-off that puts this huge pressure on both genders in order we we we, we all have to embody these days the best qualities of both mm. genders so you see how life has become much more complicated since the mm. 50s and you see when i talk about this age of perfectionism and that this idea that we live in a, a, a kind of culture now that demands perfection all across these mm. different domains and it's, it's and there are lots of good reasons for it but it's still Mm. It doesn't mean it's not hard, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard to do that. Yeah, because a, a friend of mine works for a, a company and it promotes flexible working and it's it's looking, it's, it's kind of a research company, but um, she makes it sound way more interesting than I will. Um, but she was saying that the fact that the nine to five has got sort of crumbling is a good thing for freedom and, and flexibility. But at the same time, it's such a big discussion because the nine to five used to work because the man would go to work and then there'd be someone at home. Um, it, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, and I'd, I'd also be aware of any any argument that that because we do internalise the culture, and one of the things that I found interesting in the difference between millennials and Gen X is that I think in Gen X, we'll, because we were so close to the change, we were kind of fighting against it more. And um, I think millennials, the generation, because you've been born into it, is, is sort of much more internalised, and then you find yourself defending these ideas, mm -hmm. and actually. The nine to five was really good because it meant that we had a leisure time and we had time for family and togetherness. 
So, so, so when people start arguing, actually, it's really good that work is now spread out into the rest of our lives. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure that it is that good. It could, you know, it, it, I mean, we used to live, not me, my, my parents' generation, it was perfectly normal to have one member, you know, one person earning, the other person raising the children. And, and you know, I feel like we've lost something there. Nothing to do with gender, yeah. but, but, but it's good to have somebody, whether it's a man or a woman, at home mm. raising the children. And it's good to have evenings together. And I mean, God knows, in order to keep a marriage successful, you need time together having fun. And we're losing that because of this harsh environment we're in. One of the hallmarks of neoliberalism, and the thing that it's really all about, is that the government and the state steps back and corporations and business step forward and, and, and you kind of cede all this power to business and corporations. And we're seeing the, we're seeing the end results of that now when, when, you, when you cede too much power to business and corporations. It, it, uh, you know, in the extreme example, we look at things like Grenfell Tower. I mean, that was a, that's been sort of spoken about and I, I think quite accurately is this neoliberal disaster. This is what happens when you cede too much control to business mm. and allow them to just dodge regulations in terms of the cladding. <laughs> you know, so, so I, I feel like Neoliberalism is this trade-off, and, it, and it's created this lots of good things, but it's also created lots of things we should be worrying about. That's so interesting because I guess I was I kind of come at it at the angle from you are freeing yourself up if you are. I mean, I'm not talking about the gig economy, but I'm talking mm. about self-employment. That basically the nine to five is is not so feasible anymore for a modern worker, just because mm. of all the tools we have and all the technology we have. It just seems very kind of Victorian, I find. But I understand the work-life blend is negative as well. But it's interesting that you say that it's not that empowering then. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. So, so especially if you're um, a parent with children to look after, it's very empowering because you get to be more flexible with your hours. That's one of the good things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but also, you've got to see it from the, I think, from the perspective of the fact that it wouldn't be happening if this wasn't a really good thing for business. You know, mm-hmm. so, so one of the things about not having a nine-to-five job is that you also don't get all those... Um, uh, benefits that having a nine-to-five job would accrue to you. So, I mean, I've been a freelance worker for 10 years now. I don't have a pension. So I'm 42, I don't have a pension. So I'm, I'm getting to be worried now. What am I going to do when I retire? And I actually have no idea. I mean, I just have no clue. Whereas it, from my parents are also boomers. I mean, my dad retired with, I forget what they call it. He's got this, this pension. He just worked in education. And he, he, he got this pension where you get paid forever what you're being paid when you retired. I mean, imagine that. Mm. I mean, so, so that's But then I wonder if those companies don't exist anymore. Yeah, like a lot of, I yeah. feel like, I mean, being someone in my 20s and watching my friends get made redundant, it's really hard because it's like, oh, you can't have a job for life even if you wanted one. Mm. You know, I've got friends who are like, great, I want to work at this company forever now and get a pension and do the whole thing. Um, and the companies fold. I'm never going to be made redundant from myself. But... Yeah, and again, it's a trade-off thing. So yeah, of course, you can never be redundant from yourself. But but I mean, the other thing, the other thing is that I found of being a freelance worker for ten years is that you don't really get a pay rise very much because you, there's no um, there's no economic uh, incentive for the Guardian, say, to up my word rate because why would they? <laughs> so what about, yeah, no, I see what you mean. And this is why when I, when I read your book and also I listened to some of the interviews you did, I couldn't help but think about the, the work because when you think about narcissism and the rise of the person or, you know, how we're rewarded now for being ourselves, like people earn money from literally being themselves, reality TV stars, but also just a friend down the road who's good on Instagram. And so it made me think, 
What are, what's your view on that? The fact that a lot of people are making a lot and lot, lots and lots of money from new ways of working based yeah. on just solely being themselves. Well, I mean, I think it's good, but I also, again, I mean, uh, uh, the risk is sound like a, like, a, like a grumpy old <laughs> um, so, so after I wrote Selfie, I actually did a story um, about YouTube influencers and I went down to the, you know, the YouTube um, yeah. place in St Pancras. And um, so there was a young woman there um, who, who obviously just massively talented and so for her early 20s and had loads and loads of YouTube followers. So in my head, she was this big success and I just assumed wealthy and then it emerged very quickly that she's still living with her, her dad and I said well, why are you still living with your dad and, and, and she said well I mean so, so, so she's a musician she's got this YouTube channel which is really popular she also presents two shows I think on more four and so she's doing really like amazingly well and um, and she, she just describes kind of what life was like and, and she said that she I think she got paid like one American dollar per a thousand views on YouTube which really like made me think well oh and uh, even at her Channel 4 gig she has to get up at 5 in the morning to do her hair and makeup and I said don't Channel 4 do your hair and makeup she went no no you've got to do it all yourself mm-hmm. and the whole YouTube I mean you know I mean, I, mean, I don't have to tell you <laughs> but you know for the, for the YouTube thing you have to be you have to do your own direction you have to do your own lighting you have to do everything I mean it's so neoliberal it's like there's no structure around you anymore it's yeah. just you and um, and then I asked her how, how on earth do you make a, a living and she said oh it's really good because uh, I get these advertising gigs and, and so she told me about this Nescafe gig that she'd got where she, she said it's this like cardboard coffee cup and there's coffee in it like instant coffee and you pour your water in it and you get a coffee it's really great for festivals and so I said what do you do she said I write a song about the coffee and she was up, and like because she was like saying this is a good thing but for me it's because it's a terrible thing because how the system used to work was that a record company, she was a musician primarily, would spot somebody like Bethany who was talented and they'd give her a massive cheque, like half a million pounds plus. And as well as that cheque, they'd spend multiples of that half a million pounds on studio time, producers, vocal training, stylists. There'd be a massive structure around that person. And then they'd invest even more money in videos and launching them, advertising, all this stuff. Um, and then if the project failed, she'd get to keep the money and she'd go off into the sunset, but then the, perhaps the project wouldn't fail. That's the old system. And the thing that gets me is that we used to complain about that system. Everyone used to go, oh, the man, the record companies, oh, they're just out for blood. And actually it was an amazing system. So yes, you're right that there are a few people who are making really good living out of this, but it's like this 1%. Um, and I think the old system, it was by no means perfect, but it, it felt at least that there was like a 25% that was making a good living or even a 50. But now we've kind of, as well as Spotify and all this other stuff, the, the, the new system that um, for kind of spotting um, and providing uh, a good income for creative people, such as yourself or musicians, is, is massively skewed in the direction of the corporations. And that used to be MCA and Universal Records, and now it's YouTube, and now it's Google. I mean, YouTube, the, 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 the money you get for, for, for being streamed on YouTube for a musician is just infinitesimal. Mm. It's interesting. I don't know much about the music industry, but I did see that video that went viral with Liam Gallagher making the tea and being yeah. like, I used to have people making this for me. And I was like, okay, that's not good. Um, and, but then I also feel like, Back then, so for example, say I wanted to work in the radio, in radio, I would have had to have like done an internship, climb the ladder. Uh, I don't know, didn't really know anyone where I grew up who who did that, and I guess I would have had to do different things to do that. Whereas I feel like through my own means, 
I've been able to cut in. Yeah. And so I do feel like hierarchy is dead now, in, yeah. in a sense. But I, but I think what it is is there's a different way of, of filtering and spotting talent. So you're obviously um, extremely talented. That's why you've risen to the top. Um, uh, so, so, so what, 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 what YouTube and what social media and the internet does is, it's a re- as you say, it's a really good way of quickly being spotted. And that would have taken a long time before. So I mean, the way I got into writing wasn't, I didn't go to university, I had no contacts, but I, I used to make my own music magazine and like, literally photocopy it and fold it on the floor. And then that eventually got spotted by somebody in the magazine and slowly worked up. It's a very long way of going about things, but it was the, the way things work. So yeah, you're right. it's a much more efficient way of spotting talent out there and it's great because it means that for for, for a I don't know working class person being brought up in a council estate in Redcar have got just as much talent as opportunities being spotted as somebody who went to Eton Mm -hmm. because it levels that they both got an internet connection yes exactly and a good idea hopefully yeah and that's the fantastic thing about it but at the same time that machine once you're in it for nurturing and developing talent was much was was much better for the artist once you're in the machine because as I say you'd have this big team around you as I say the, the, it, it's, it's neoliberal the the the, the, um, uh, the 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 kind of internet way of doing things is is harsh mm. it's really harsh yeah it's it's very interesting this because I think this conversation is not going to go away in terms of the workplace is changing there's nothing anyone can do to change it it's, it's interesting how much of a cut you can keep yourself. That's what I'm interested in. I'm like, I don't want to give my cut to you. <laughs> yeah. I want to keep it. Yeah. And so that's what I find exciting about doing things on your own. But yeah, also there was a study that um, I found when I was writing my book last year about um, talent agents for actors. They would look at their Instagram feed and it wasn't being judged on the sole talent anymore and that made me really sad because I think there's a lot of artists out there who hate social media yeah getting an Instagram account would kill them inside yeah and it's a shame that you might have to play into that now but you do that's absolutely part of the book business these days and I, it's a slightly less these days angle but I, I, I'm terrible at Twitter and I tried really hard to be good at Twitter but you're not love following your Twitter <laughs> oh, thank you well I mean but, you know some people are just naturally good at Twitter you know like Sally Hughes, who was an old colleague of mine years ago, she's just a genius. I don't know what she's just got this thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, where, we, where um, and I don't, and, and and that's very true of the book business. Where if you have zillion Twitter followers, that that opens the door to an almost automatic book deal. Mm-hmm. So so it's hard on, especially young writers who have been writing. Lots of people who are writers, especially novelists, they're not particularly gregarious social mm-hmm. people. It's not good, but that, but that is increasingly the way that companies like. Macmillan, mm-hmm. where we're sitting at the moment, are deciding on who gets the publishing contracts and who doesn't. It's yeah. just this really sort of pragmatic I, I would not want to be a teenager right now. <laughs> it li- literally gives me a headache thinking yeah. about all of that. I mean, I don't think anyone in their teenagers should have to manage an, a, a channel of their thoughts and curate this identity outside of real life. Yeah. It's like you don't know who you are yet. I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I was an absolute pillock when I was a teenager, and I thank God that, that, that social media wasn't around then, because I, I wouldn't want that stuff particularly out there. Yeah, same. <laughs> so if there's one thing that you would want someone to take away from this book and read it and think, oh, that's really made me think about that, and actually I might even change this, what would that be? Well, I guess, well okay, so if, if there was one thing uh, that, that, that... Okay, it would be the thing that's changed my life and my perception and that is that this idea of perfection that is present, constantly presented to us you know whether it's a youtube influencer or it's somebody in advertising or it's the hero in a movie 
it's a it's a it's a fantasy. It's propaganda. It's your culture just telling you this is who you ought to be if you want to sort of get along and get ahead. It's it's not some law of the universe. And actually, what the science shows is that is that we it's impossible to become perfect. You know, we have these personality traits which are um, to a significant degree biological. So we're born a certain way, and we, we move. We can move. You know, a bit, a bit to the left and a bit to the right, but most of that movement is done when we're young, and we, we have not much control over what's going on. And then once we're in our mid twenties, really, we, we we're not stuck, but but it's very hard to kind of change who we are in any purposeful way. So, if you want to sort of be happier um, and uh, uh, be less anxious and less stressed, then for me, the thing to do is to try and change your environment rather than try to change yourself. Like, stop trying to become somebody who you can never possibly be. Um, so the way I, I talk about it in the book is this idea of the lizard and the iceberg. So if you've, if you've got a lizard and it's on an iceberg, that's a really unhappy, <laughs> miserable lizard. But you just take that same lizard and you put it in the desert, suddenly the lizard is happy. The lizard hasn't changed at all who it is, um, but it's become happy. And I think that's very, very, very much true for who we are. So if you're chasing some dream that the world is telling you is impossible, our culture says, you can do anything you want, just dream big, keep trying and you'll get it. It's a lie, it's not true. Um, so kind of have the wherewithal to, 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 to really think about, do I need to adjust my dream? Do I need, or, you know, if, if the people that you are trying to become friends with are making you unhappy, change them. <laughs> Find different friends to hang around with. If your job is making you unhappy, stop trying to change yourself in order to fit in with your job. Try and find something else to do. I really think mm. that's the... That's the secret, because our culture tells us this lie, and that is that we have ultimate control over who we are, and we can become Beyonce, we can become Michael Jordan, and it is a lie, and it, and it, and it leads to this huge quotient of misery in our, in our mm. culture. Yeah, and it's the amount of money we spend on things that we think will change us. And I just feel like people are being sold their dreams, and actually their dream, dreams can't be bought. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, yeah, you can go to something that might help you with your craft. I, I get that. But I just, there's certain things that they're really milking this idea of someone sort of just saying, like, here's all my money and please give me the answer. Yeah, that, uh, that's absolutely it. I mean, uh, and, and the lie um, is constantly reinforced because it's one we want to believe and it's the one that our economy encourages. I mean, because it, it, it sells stuff to us. So, you know, so. So, so, so you constantly get this, I mean that's what self-esteem was all about, it, it was this lie that said all you've got to do to become perfect is to believe that you're amazing and that had this, this insane runaway effect, I mean it completely, um, uh, people just bought this idea all around the world because it was just so attractive, really all I've got to do to become successful is to believe I'm amazing and of course it wasn't true um, and, and, and yeah it's, again it's, it goes back to that neoliberal economy, it, it's, it's going to keep being pushed on us because it just makes us spend money it mm. makes us it makes us buy these products it's like that episode of black mirror i think it is where you walk past a hologram of yourself like in the perfect kitchen with the marble <laughs> top and you're like that's the, that's me yeah. but a happier version of me but i i find it interesting that the internet allows you to rebrand yourself i mm. think i do believe in in being able to create this person who you want to be and then it sort of feeds into your real life I sometimes find like you can gather yourself, you can gather people around you. Like I've made a lot of friends on the internet, for example, which makes me sound really sad, but actually they, that has changed my life because I've been able to actually find people like me without, I don't know, yeah. just going searching around my local village. And that's the thing, again, it is a trade-off. It's, like, um, it's not good or bad, the internet. It's just this thing. And, mm. and, and there are lots of really amazing 
things. I mean, one one of the you know one of the good things about selfies is is that is that young women and men who have non-traditional body types, beauty types, can get esteem. Can you know? So 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 selfies themselves aren't inherently bad. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, look at the dating scene. It's just become normalised now. People meeting their partners on the internet. Where just literally ten years ago, it was seen as this like a taboo, weird, yeah. desperation thing, and now it's just like normal. And that's great because it's just inc- increasing mm. happiness, as far as I can see. Yeah, no, it's good to be a self-aware. I think of these yeah. things, and that's what I loved about your book is you can live, you can do what you want, but at the same time, it's good to just know why you're doing things and what and and if you're really needing some sort of validation why do you need that validation you don't really need it yeah it's just easy to tap into it but it, i didn't realize there was a difference between being narcissistic as in colloquial chat you're a bit narcissistic looking at yourself in the mirror an actual an actual personality disorder yeah and i thought that was quite interesting as well it, of looking at that word and what it means and when to know that maybe it's gone too far <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that's it that's one of the confusions we, you know we use the word narcissism in just casual conversation but there's also a pathology narcissistic personality uh, disorder which is I mean, a much rarer thing but but i i i think the thing that mark the, the, if the, the quality that marks that out is, is is when somebody has this default expectation that they need to be treated differently and because they're special and they're exceptional and they're not like anybody else and i think that that's when it tips into mm. pathology that's that's what scares me though about the fact that you know someone in a restaurant might be treated differently because they have Twitter followers or Instagram followers and you know that that idea that you know on Uber when you get a rating like per people getting ratings it really freaks me out because I don't, I don't think we're far off from that because people can look you up and then know your influence and treat you differently and I find that horrible yeah because everyone should be treated the same but it's but yeah and it, and it kind of makes you think this is a new kind of class system like we, we kind yeah. of slowly getting rid of the oh we're kind of getting rid of the old it's not really getting rid of the old system but it's like a new form of but I think that goes back to the, again the fact that we're animals and we, we exist in these hierarchies of status and, and most animals do lobsters do you know this is yeah. absolutely inherent we, we, we won't we can't stop um, uh, 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 we sort of naturally sort ourselves into sort of status um, levels when, we, when we're in any kind of group even like the food chain and stuff like that yeah, yeah. that's it yeah. and it's actually that what you we were just saying about everybody's got a little little mark I mean it's like a dystopian idea but it's actually what they're working towards in China which obviously communist state and the state is all powerful and, and, and what they're working towards apparently in China is this idea that you, you have a score like a social like a score of how good you are a number that oh defines you I mean just, that's just like that's nightmare. That is horrendous. <laughs> and that's what they use in the internet and all this stuff for. They monitor you. And I mean, there was even I even read a story. There was a new, new scientist about um, they're going to have facial recognition on um, pedestrian crossings, and if you've crossed the road at the wrong time, they called in. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. surveillance, yeah. big time. That is like Black Mirror come to life. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I always ask guests this: uh, What are you looking forward to that's coming up? And it doesn't have to be work-related; it can be anything. Just in general, what what have you got coming up that you want to plug? Or just in general, it could be like a holiday and you're not doing anything. What am I going? Well, well, the thing that I'm really excited about at the moment is is actually uh, the book I'm working on at the moment, which is um, it's like a short book called The Science of Storytelling. And, and if there's an idea, there's an idea that connects the heretics, my previous book, and selfie. That's how we we live our lives as 
story. That's that's kind of what we do. And there's so many sort of ideas that sort of fall off from that. And that's that turned into a course. So I do a, I do a, a, a course, um, a writing course with the science of storytelling. And now I'm doing a book, kind of off the course that <laughs> it's kind of, but 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 it's basically going to be just all about that that idea. And, and I'm doing all this research at the moment, and it's just sort of triggering so many insights that I'm just sort of fizzing with excitement about that. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I love that. I love I love the real the realization that you're sort of telling yourself a story every single day. You're yeah. Like, Am I making this up? <laughs> yeah. I think I've been reading a lot of Brené Brown. Have you heard no, of her? No, I'm not familiar so with her. So she's um she's a I think she's a scientist or well, she's like a behavioral psychologist, I think. Um but she studies shame and vulnerability. Oh. And she did a TED talk that went viral a few years ago and it's about um about the stories we make up, it's, I think it's called. Oh. And um, so, for example, when you can get into a fight with your partner over something they haven't done, because you've told yourself a I need whole, to look this talk up. A whole narrative, <laughs> and I do it. I do it even when someone doesn't reply to your WhatsApp, and you're like, oh, I've ruined my friendship with them forever. And then yeah. they'll reply being like, oh, sorry, I was just out to get milk. And it's like, why, why do we do that to ourselves? Yeah, that, and that's what I'm looking at. And, and, and the thing that I'm really interested in at the moment, because we're living in such tribal times, I mean, whether you're on the left or the right, you've got, it's, we're becoming much more, obviously, factional and groupish, and I think that's a really dangerous thing. Mm. And it's this idea that ideology is a story too. So all of us are um, so vulnerable to, to falling for that ideology and only seeing... Um, one half of the story and actually when you look at the world in, it, it, properly you, you see that left and right or whatever everybody has at half of the truth and and it's such a powerful thing in our heads that, and it causes such division and it's just amazing when you kind of try and break through that and, and try and understand that no matter how true it seems to you it's likely that you only have half the truth and the other side has, mm. has that truth too. Does that mean then that you you do hold a truth, but it's just not someone else's? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's kind of half. Yeah, I kind of, yeah, I kind of think of it as kind of half the, tr- yeah, half the truth probably. Yeah, so that that's how I kind of um, uh, see it. Uh, so my, the book before Selfie was called The Heretics, and it was about why clever people believe crazy things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and so the idea that, that that came out of that was that we all live our lives. That what the brain does is it creates this kind of, I call it the hero-maker illusion, and it makes us feel that we are heroic moral characters on this path towards making our lives and the world a better place. That's, that's where it begins if we're healthy, if we're not depressed. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tend to uncritically but accept any idea that flatters our heroic sense of self and dismiss as wrong mm-hmm. all the other ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what leads to these, kind of very tr- these great tribal conflicts because it becomes really threatening to... Admit that other people have the marks some of their ideas. I mean, I've, I'm a left-wing person. Have a left-wing brain. It'll never change. But I think what you see through history is that, you know, on the right they want to conserve everything. They're conservatives. They want to keep hold of the structure and order. <laughs> and on the left, we want to smash everything down and go. It's not good enough. We need to change. And actually, I think what the truth is is that sometimes that we're. I'm arrogantly assuming you're also a left-wing person. You might not be. But sometimes the left are right, and sometimes the right are right, and that's kind of how it actually works. But to be the, in possession of a human brain with your storytelling brain, you really struggle to see when the other side are right. <laughs> and I was just, I was gonna ask, when you're writing, how do you write if you're coming at it from both sides? Because you're obviously a person who does look at all sides mm. in order to make sense of something, but if I'm 
policing my thoughts as I write. Like, oh, that person might think that, and that person might think that, and is that right? I don't think I'd ever write anything. Well, that, that's, I mean, I'm in an extremely privileged situation, and I think that's probably why I've been able to sort of end up at this place of understanding this, because I've been a journalist for 20, getting on 20 years now, so that's meant that for 20 years, I've been going out and talking to people with whom I just don't agree with, I don't agree with at all, including serial killers, literal Nazis, you know, creationists who believe that all gay people are going to hell, and sitting down with them and having like four or five hour conversations with them, understanding their worldview. And even though you often, well, with these people all the time, you, ne you, you never leave agreeing with them. What you do is you, you leave understanding them much, in a place of much reduced outrage and understanding, oh, I can understand, see where, you, where you've got this um, point of view from. So, 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 so you, you write in a balanced way if you've done your proper job as a journalist and actually going out there and sincerely listening to your opponent and, um, and not, you know, a bad journalist goes in there and just looks for ways to cut them down. Mm. But I think for a good journalist, yeah, yeah, and to create the outrage. But a good journalist tries to actually sincerely understand what they're saying, and then that's when you come away with the, with, with something approaching the truth. But there are also some handy um, handy things that you can think of, um, you can look out for yourself. I always think that because we're storytelling animals, um, you, I've got some warning signs, some red flags that when I know that I'm wrong. And the first one is, when all the good is on my side and all the bad is on their side, you've gone wrong because life is hardly ever like that. Of course, sometimes it is. Yeah. And also I think, always be careful when you are uh, in a place of high emotion. So when you're feeling really emotional mm -hmm. and angry about something, literally the, 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 the thing with which you're interpreting the world, your brain, is it's sort of, not malfunctioning is the wrong word, but it's... Skewing it. It's skewing it. Yeah, mm. and uh, there's this, um, there's this um, uh, brilliant psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, um, and he talks about this idea that we make things sacred, and everybody makes various things sacred, um, and you know when you've made something sacred because you become madly angry mm. with it. Anybody even goes anywhere near threatening right. it. And he said to me, if you want to spot irrationality, look for the things that people make sacred. Right. And I, yeah. I think that is so needed right now more than ever, that ability to have a conversation and also to see both sides yeah, yeah and not shy yeah. away from it yeah thank you so much that <laughs> was amazing that was like a whirlwind but exactly what i wanted to to uh, talk about and um yeah your book is incredible and just to dive inside your brain for even 30 minutes was really interesting thank oh, you it was so a much real pleasure thanks emma thank you <laughs>